Hey everyone, I am so excited to finally be introducing our brand new Curbsider show on addiction medicine featuring longtime Curbsider, Dr. Carolyn Chan and her friends in addiction medicine. This is a fantastic series. It's coming out weekly on its own channel for about a dozen weeks and it covers great topics like alcohol use disorder, benzo use disorder, stimulant use disorder, opioid use disorder, and you're about to hear the very first episode where we had a fantastic conversation about methadone. I learned so much on this episode. I learned so much from this series, and I can't wait for y'all to hear it. So make sure you to subscribe to it in your podcast feeds. Enjoy. Hey, Kenny. Hey, Carolyn. Are you excited to talk about the Galapagos of medicine tonight? The Galapagos of medicine is like an otoscope. Oh, well, you are in for a treat. You are in for a treat today. And everybody just welcome back to the Curbsiders Addiction Medicine, our new mini series on substance use disorders. I'm Dr. Carolyn Chan, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Dr. Kenny Morford and Dr. Matt Watto. And tonight's episode, you will not only learn about the Galapagos of medicine, uh, you will also learn about methadone for the treatment of opioid use disorder with Dr. Ruth Pody. But before we get started with that, Matt, will you please remind our audience what we do on this show? Sure, Carolyn. Well, this is this is a curbsider show, so obviously it's going to be clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And but this one just happens to be the addiction medicine podcast. Maybe because I don't know if there's another addiction medicine podcast, but uh, certainly this is the curbsiders addiction medicine podcast, and I'm excited to be here. Is now a good time to summarize for the audience what we are going to learn about tonight? Yeah, please. I learned a ton, audience, because I was in the room here, virtual room, with a bunch of addiction medicine experts, but I got to be the noob and ask all these, like, what I thought were basic questions, because, and I feel so much more comfortable now if I were to have a patient in the hospital and needed to start methadone, I feel like I would know exactly how to do that. We talked about the pharmacology. We talked a little bit about, like, the legality and some of the interesting history behind this, and and we, we talk about what's a usual dose, how do you get there, how do you titrate it? What do you monitor? Very practical stuff and just a passionate guest who just really just brought it and uh, very excited for people to hear this. And Kenny, please tell us more about our guest tonight. Happy to. So we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, uh, Dr. Ruth Poti. So she is a family physician and addiction specialist who works in Western Massachusetts. She was a full scope family physician for 20 years with a focus on pregnancy, reproductive health and pediatrics. Um, but she's been practicing full-time substance use treatment for the last three years. And she oversees four methadone clinics, a large urban office-based opioid treatment clinic, a jail-based opioid treatment program. And she trains medical students, residents, and addiction fellows. And she sees patients every day. And a reminder just to everybody out there that this episode, as are most of our episodes, are available for free CME through BCU Health CE for all health professionals at the curbsiders.bcu.health.org. All you have to do is create an account and a special thanks to the American College of Academic Addiction Medicine, also known as ACAM, who have partnered with us to help support the Curbsiders Addiction Medicine miniseries. ACAM is the proud home for academic addiction medicine faculty and trainees, and they are committed to supporting and training the next generation of academic addiction medicine leaders. Learn more about their organization at ACAM.org. The Curbsiders Addiction Medicine is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. The topics discussed should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly Cashlack Memorial Hospital. In short, we aren't responsible if you screw up. Please do your homework and let us know if we got something wrong. And now let's jump into learning more about Ruth. Thanks so much, Ruth, for being with us today and being on the show. So why don't we get started with just a couple of rapid fire questions to get to know you a little bit better. So can you please give us a one liner to describe yourself? I'm a feminist and environmentalist and a massive composter. I've converted my yard from a tightly mown lawn to a meadow and bird pollinating native plant meadow. Amazing. I've been obsessed with Gardener's World, so I'm learning all about composting right now. Well, so another thing that we're interested in, since we are the Curbsiders Addiction Medicine, is if you could tell us um, some of your favorite aspects of working in this field of addiction medicine. 
I've been a 23-year family physician. I'm a full-scope family doctor, and I, I used to really take care of women and children and pregnancy and reproductive health issues, And but I trained at Boston Medical Center. So if you're training at Boston Medical Center, you learn about addiction. And uh, it's just always been the most rewarding part of my job because you can, you're with people who are really suffering and whose lives tend to be really chaotic, and you can actually truly help them. And there's so much of primary care, and I love primary care, but there's so much where I would spend a day and I, I wasn't so sure I'd really made a difference in people's lives and their quality of life and whether they experienced a big difference. But with addiction medicine, you really do. Yeah, I, lo I love that, that, you know, you can feel the impact of this work, but also that you've approached it as a generalist. And I think that's because addiction medicine is something that all generalists can do. Um, so that's really great to, to hear that from you. And why don't we get started and, and sort of talk about our first case up here in Cashlack. So Kenny, why don't you kick us off? Why don't you give us a case to sort of kick off and really ground our discussion and methadone treatment? All right. So why don't we start with uh, Miss Palm? So she is a 27-year-old woman with severe opioid use disorder who is admitted to the hospital with left-hand cellulitis and opioid withdrawal. Um, so she says she's been injecting up to 20 bags of fentanyl daily over the past year. She was briefly treated with buprenorphine naloxone in the past, but she hated the taste and she says that it didn't help her opioid cravings. She's never been treated with methadone, but she's open to trying it if it'll make her feel better. So to start with the basics, Dr. Pody, I'm wondering if you could tell us what is methadone and how does it treat opioid use disorder? So methadone is a full agonist treatment that we've been using since the 1960s for the treatment of opiate use disorder. It was discovered during World War II in Germany for pain management, but three incredibly smart scientists, two of whom were women, began using it for people who were struggling with opiate use in New York City in the mid-1960s. And lo and behold, it was incredibly effective. It was incredibly effective then. It's incredibly effective now. The problem is that we never learned about it. Actually, any one of us really learned about it outside of a pharmacology class, maybe if we were lucky in medical school. And after that point, it disappears. And unless you're in a methadone clinic, it is the Galapagos of medicine. You never learn about it, and yet it's critically important. And it's so it, it's one of the harms that happened during the early part of the opiate epidemic is states began saying to physicians, you have to stop using these long-acting, more expensive agents and switch everybody to methadone. And so when people say lots of people die on methadone, they're describing a period of time when untrained primary care people like myself were prescribing methadone without any knowledge. And people did overdose and die because it's actually much more complicated to help people have chronic pain with methadone. You need to do it carefully. And that's not our mission today talking about the management of chronic pain with methadone. We're talking about opiate use with methadone. But it's again, it's, it's a shame that we did not learn about this drug in great detail. And all of us on this call and many of the people listening have their buprenorphine waivers and they did the eight or the 24 hours of mandated training. If there was going to be mandated training on anything, it should be on methadone because people do need to understand how it works and it's long half-life. And on that note, can you tell us a little bit more about how it works specifically to treat opioid use disorder? Because I do think there's a bit of a difference between, you know, using it for opioid use disorder versus using it for pain, which folks may be more familiar with. So for pain, it's period of efficacy is, is short. It's six to eight hours. So when you're using it for pain, you're dosing it three or four times a day. But for opiate use disorder, it actually works almost all the time being dosed once a day. It has a very long half-life. And there's so many magic things about methadone, in addition to the fact that it actually works for so many people. It has huge bioavailability. You take it and 85% of it, your body actually sees. We all know that's not true for buprenorphine. Its actual bioavailability is quite low, 30%, 40%. It's variable based on who you are in your mouth and other things. Methadone is variable per person as well. And, and you do need to be careful with it. There are some people who will get stable in a very narrow window at a very low dose. And there's other people for whom the, the window of potential stability is quite wide. And you cannot predict who is who. And so there are guidelines that are the federal guidelines about how to dose it that are useful in the beginning. I know that this case is, is helpful because it specifically talks about fentanyl and I happen to be in New England and you all happen to, at least part of you in New England, and we have a have had a fentanyl predominant illicit drug market since 
2016. The rest of the country, I'm sad to say, has now caught up. There's every, all the 50 states are fentanyl predominant, but the intensity has been around less long than it has in New England. We have been watching it for quite a while. And we'll talk a little bit in this case specifically about how to dose methadone in the fentanyl era because it is different. And the final thing I'll say is, you need to know whether you're a primary care doctor or you're an addiction doctor, you need to know what your illicit drug supply is out there and you need to stay up to date on it because it, it changes around a lot. Every three to six months, it is shifting and you need to be keeping track of it. So I, you know, well, thank you for bringing up the fentanyl issue because I think that is something that we're seeing and it's really changing the way that we think about methadone and just any of these medications for treating opioid disorder. But just to get back for a minute to Carolyn's question about, you know, pain versus opioid use disorder or opioid addiction, you know, a lot of times when people think about treating addiction who don't have any training in it, it's like, oh, well, well, you treat them to stop using that substance. But, you know, like, what does that mean? So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, like, are there specific symptoms that you're looking for when you are giving methadone, dosing it, that you're saying, these are the things that I'm trying to to help this patient with by using this medication? When I sit with a patient and talk about how to get them to a stable dose, I, I do talk about the politics of it. I, I want them to understand why they're sitting in a, in a clinic and sort of a, in a, a neighborhood and there was a line outside and the security. And, and I, I comment on how strange that is because I, you know, if there's one thing I hope that our listeners leave with is I actually hope that most people are outraged about the way this medication is being delivered to people because it needs to change. And, and yes, we're going to talk about the medicine, et cetera, but I do, it is completely wrapped up in the, in the regulations and the politics. But what, what I say to a patient is the goal with methadone is to feel normal, to feel healthy and to have that last about 24 hours. If you're feeling pretty good during the day, but at six o'clock at night, it turns off like a light switch, you're not on the right dose of methadone. Because what will happen to those people is they'll do the rational thing and then they'll go use illicit substances. And if their goal is to stop illicit substances, then getting to the right dose of methadone is important. If their goal is to just reduce their use of illicit substances and just decrease chaos in their life, then they may or may not choose to get to the true therapeutic range. Um, and those are choices they can make. And, and we discussed that. This is a harm reduction approach. Um, they're not punished for continued use, at least not in, this, in Massachusetts. There are only two states where you can't be fired from the clinic for continuing use of drugs. But that does mean that in uh, 47 other states, they can let you go for continued use of substances. Uh, but I think more and more, partly because there's new, young, smart, addiction-trained people out there, and quite honestly, medical students and residents, although they don't aren't trained as well as they should, they are so interested in helping people with substance use get their lives better that I, I think in 10 years, the notion of harm reduction will be like, of course, that's the way you would treat people. Why would you ever fire them from clinic for using cocaine? It's not rational. So when I talk to people, I say the goal is to feel normal and healthy for 24 hours. You should not be having drug dreams or having cravings. And it's going to take us a little while to get to that right therapeutic dose for you. And we will work with you to get there. That's amazing. So I want to take a moment to just summarize all that. So the way methadone works, it is it is an opioid. It is a full opioid agonist with this beautiful trait of having an extraordinary long half-life. So through the use of the long half-life, we can sort of dose it once a day and help manage individuals' symptoms of withdrawal and cravings because it's really destabilizing that new opioid receptor. And I don't know. And, you know, the first time I actually prescribed methadone, of course, was when I was uh, a fellow. And wow, it was it was just life changing. Like it was incredible to see. I actually can still remember the first person I prescribed methadone for and just how much better they felt, uh, which was just kind of an extraordinary experience. Can I interject as a methadone noob? I, I think a lot of the times when you see a patient in the hospital, someone that's on a high dose, let's say 100 milligrams methadone a day, people are worried about, oh, when I give this to them, are they getting, are they going to get high from it? And just worried about giving that amount of medicine. And um, it, it, you talked about how there's an analgesic effect that you dose it three times a day for analgesia. So what happens when once someone's been on this high dose for a while, do, is, that, is that a legitimate concern that people have about it? So it's a great question. 
Matt, and I appreciate you at throwing yourself in there as a newbie. So first of all, 100 milligrams isn't a high dose of methadone. It's a normal dose of methadone. So a normal range of methadone is between 80 and 120. That is just normal. But for some people, a normal dose is 180 or 220. And so I think there's a lot of judgment that we have of, oh, it's so high. But again, that's because I think most of us have no idea what we're doing because nobody ever taught us this. As I just proved. <laughs> <laughs> When you're on the right dose of methadone, you're not getting high. You're just, again, feeling normal. And it, would you give 120 milligrams of methadone to an opiate naive person? Of course not, because you would kill them. People come to a methadone clinic and get treatment because they have an opiate use disorder and they're not naive. They're actually heavily exposed and incredibly tolerant to the medication. So there's actually, there's no ceiling on methadone. There just isn't. I mean, are there people who might need 300 milligrams of methadone? It's possible. In, in my clinics, in, and I'm going to say something that's expert opinion here, but fentanyl is such a garbage drug. My, how do I learn about anything? My patients teach me everything. When I, when I don't understand what people are describing, I'm like, pause, tell me what you're talking about because I don't understand it. And patients have taught me that fentanyl is garbage. It's garbage because one, it's trying to murder you, right? It's a serial murderer on our street and it doesn't even work that well, right? It's on, off, on, off all day long. And the problem with that, and as harm reduction people, as people who worry about the health and life of both humans, but also of the economic economy and our, and our planet, when people are using five times a day, 10 times a day, just to feel normal, nobody's getting high, they're just using to feel normal, they are putting themselves at risk of death, of overdose, of, of soft tissue infection, of endocarditis and a spinal abscess, 10 times more than normal. And this fentanyl has changed the world for us. So, you know, 40% of hospitalizations are substance related these days. And it's hard, if you're not paying attention to people struggle with substances and you work in a hospital, you're missing a big chunk of your job. So it really, it just causes so much damage to the human, human body, especially when you're using injectable. And it's it, nobody wants that. I mean, there's so much shame with addiction already, but when you have an abscess and you're heavily scarred and you're on your second bout of endocarditis and, and you already feel like a throwaway person, but going to the hospital is the worst place for you. Again, fentanyl is damaging to the human psyche in a way that, you know, I, I, I wish for the old days of heroin, right? And I say to my patients, they'll never return. The days of hectares of poppies, that will never happen again because the economics don't make sense. So we are left with this miserable um, synthetic opiate running our streets and murdering more and more Americans every day. And in terms of our case, you know, we're lucky right now that Ms. Palm, I mean, she did go to the hospital to see care and treatment and is interested in starting methadone. Okay. So she's never been on methadone before. And how would you think about starting this individual? So they are clearly uh, not opioid naive. They're very opioid tolerant. They've been using fentanyl regularly. Like if a hospitalist wa wanted to start an individual on methadone in the hospital, like what sort of dose should they start and how would you think about titrating that? So the first thing I would say about this case is, is what you said, Carolyn, is right. She's with us right now and we have this great opportunity to help her feel better, even if she doesn't decide to stay on methadone long term. The side effect of her disease is her cellulitis in her hand, but her real disease is opiate use, and we need to help her feel better right this minute. And more and more hospitals are getting better at this, although the majority of the hospitals in the country still would not provide her treatment. They would neither give her buprenorphine, nor would they give her methadone. I hate to say it, we're all working in fairly elite Northeastern hospitals that do this regularly and have addiction consult services, but we can acknowledge that the average community hospital has nothing out there. And so if that is who is in our audience right now, First of all, you don't need a special license to use methadone at all. And at the hospital level of care, you don't need to be licensed as a methadone clinic or an OTP. The DEA regulates you the way they would regulate a hospital, but you can just start somebody on methadone to help them feel better if you're a hospital, period. And that's a great thing. If you're an outpatient primary care doctor, you absolutely cannot do that. But as a hospital, you can. So this woman, is if she's not sick yet, she's going to be sick in a matter of hours. And if you don't help her, she will walk out of that building or she will use in the bathroom and be at risk of overdose. And our 
hospitals are not really prepared for that and it makes them very angry at patients. So the initial dose of methadone for somebody like this who's using 20 bags of fentanyl a day, it, you could start her at 30 milligrams. You could choose to start her at 40 milligrams. You could say, I'm new to this. I'm a little nervous. I might give her 20 milligrams and then give her another 10 and another 10 for a total of 40 today. In a hospital setting, you have eyes on her 24 hours. You have people down the hallway who can check in on her. You have all the freedom in the world. It's a perfect time to get somebody on a stable dose. So the federal rules about the first day having a limit don't actually apply in a hospital. They do apply in a methadone clinic. I will just talk about that later. But so in her case, based on how she's feeling, you would score her on a cows. You or the nurses would be well-trained in monitoring and, and getting an assessment on a cows score. And my hope is that most people here know that a cows is the equivalent of a CEWA score that you might use for somebody with alcohol use. And you just heard me say there's a variety of ways you can approach her. And as you get more comfortable doing this work in the hospital, you'll sort of come up with a number. And you know what you're really going to do is you're going to talk to the patient and explain your rationale too, and say, this is my thought. And she's going to say, 20, 20 is not even going to come close. And you're going to say, you know what? I'm going to start there. And then in two hours, if you're not looking good, we can get you another 20. And if that's not holding you, we'll give you more. Okay. Because patients are filled with fear and she's already scared because she doesn't want to be there and she's in the hospital and she's not getting treated well. I guarantee you that. So helping her feel like you're in her corner is going to go a long way. One of the other things I would have said about her is she's a, she's a helpful case because she's, she's a newbie. She's a neophyte. Lots of our people come in and say, I've been on methadone before. I got stable at 120. I actually got arrested three weeks ago and now and my jail didn't give it to me. So I've been off and I've been so sick and I've just been using. That is someone who you're going to feel quite confident being more aggressive in. They are not new to the molecule of methadone. Their body has seen it. Yeah, they haven't seen it in three weeks, but that's somebody who I would start. I'd be more aggressive starting. So, you know, I just wanted to thank you for kind of highlighting the patient experience of being terrified of going to the hospital. You know, I think any patient's scared to go to the hospital, but for someone coming in like our patient here who has opioid use disorder, probably prior experiences of being stigmatized, and, you know, this is the last place she wants to be. Um, so, you know, there's that part of it. But the other part is that on our side as clinicians and physicians, you know, it's an opportunity to really meet someone where they are and make sure that we can show them that they deserve good medical care and they can be treated for both their addiction and their medical comorbidities. Can I ask a question, another noob question about dosing? And and Ruth, if uh, if you would correct me, that'd be great. Because when I was uh, when I was in training and even more recently as a hospitalist, I was told you could give 30 milligrams or up to 40 milligrams. You mentioned 40 milligrams. You could give like 30 as a max dose at one time for someone who hasn't been on methadone. And then you could give another 10 that first day. So up to 40. And then people, I've seen people in the hospital, even if they're opioid experienced, get titrated like every three to five days, they go up by five or 10, something like that on the methadone. So it would take them a very long time to get to a dose of 120. It sounds like you're implying that's no longer the case and so that was part of it. And then the other part was like this magical three days where at some point you were only allowed to prescribe for three days in the hospital unless you were connecting them to a an, a methadone clinic. So has all that gone away? Because I still think uh, a lot of people believe all that is true. And I know part, busting some myths is part of what we wanted to talk about. So I, I know Matt well enough from Curbsiders to know that he asks these questions that are, you know, they're a little tongue in cheek. And I love that. But sadly he's still right about most of these rules and regulations. These rules were written in 1973, 1973. Next year, they're going to be 50 years old. And in the regulations of the code of federal regulations, it is written how much you can prescribe in terms of methadone um, for a patient on day one. And it is the max dose is 30 milligrams and you're allowed to prescribe another 10 milligrams if you reassess them. But this really applies to methadone clinics too. OTPs or N NTPs, narcotic treatment programs. And in the hospital setting, I think most of us believe that in a hospital setting, the OTP rules do not apply. So in a hospital setting, you could be more aggressive. And again, we're dealing with fentanyl. It's in a fentanyl world in 1973, fentanyl didn't exist and they probably couldn't have imagined what this world would look like. But having said that, what was just described is very typical in the average OTP is that 60% of methadone clinics in the nation are private. They're for profit. They're owned by shareholders. 
They're owned by Bear Stearns. Like there's people making money every day on the backs of people with addiction. And that's what drives those methadone clinics. And, and again, this is a medical program trying to really get primary care and hospitalists to think about methadone and feel more comfortable with it. So I won't go deep on that subject. But having said that, they are sticking by their, their own internal rules that they've had in place for 20 years. And so it is normal in a methadone clinic to start at 30 and for them to say, my protocol that I've had in place since 2005 is I will increase you by five milligrams every three to five days. In which case, the normal rational patient would say, this is not worth my time. It is much easier for me to just continue to use fentanyl than show up every morning and be late to work and not be able to drop my kid off at daycare and go to a methadone clinic because they're not helping me. And so it's one of those places where physicians and other people, but I would say physicians are pretty, they, they are risk adverse and they worry that they're going to do harm. And my attitude is you will do harm to people if you cannot take care of their needs fast enough. I tell people I am going to increase you quickly and safely. And in the fentanyl era, you can be more aggressive. And I say that from my own personal experience. I run four methadone clinics. I run four withdrawal management programs. And the more you do this work, the more comfortable you are getting doing this work. But I also rely on the can Canadians because the Canadians are just a bunch of rock stars when it comes to addiction medicine. And they came out last summer with a great document that my hope is we can post on the Curbsider web website, which is how to dose methadone in the fentanyl era. And they say you really should be moving 10 to 15 milligrams every two to three days. You need to get people stable fast because you want them to stick to the program. Thank you so much. And then as far as the, uh, in the, in the U S in a hospital, any worry about this, like three, oh, you can only treat for three days unless they have like an appointment with a methadone clinic when they leave. That was this old th thing that people always used to talk about. Right. So I'm going to ask Kenny and Sean and Carolyn to jump in on this one as well. But in general, the hospitals believe now that they can stabilize people on methadone at whatever dose they need to get to for as long as they need to. For now, that seems to be working and no one is getting in the way. We have good people at the federal government at SAMHSA who, and no one's going to come after a hospital for doing the right thing. The problem is in the 72-hour rule is what you're referencing, Matt. The 72-hour rule was clarified by the DEA just about six to eight weeks ago. And what they said is from the emergency room, from a hospital pharmacy or a hospital Pixis system, you could start somebody on methadone and you could dose them for 72 hours. That is not an inpatient. That is an outpatient who came to the ER with an overdose, with a cellulitis that you chose to treat as an outpatient. But for 72 hours or three days, while you're waiting to get them into the local methadone clinic, you could dose them out of a federally qualified community health center pharmacy, out of the hospital pharmacy, or out of the emergency room. So that's the 72-hour rule. And the DEA wants people to know that that's allowed and legal. And they're promoting it because they recognize that in today's era, and we'll talk about it a little bit, but buprenorphine is not working like it used to. Buprenorphine was not designed to battle fentanyl. It just wasn't. And it's a sad thing because I've been a butte prescriber since 2002 and it's been my friend and it's helped so many of my patients for so long. But here is this woman who has said, I hate the way it tastes and it's not helping me with my cravings. And right there, you've lost an incredibly effective drug, but in the fentanyl era, not as effective as it used to be. So while we're talking about doses, you know, because I think one of the things with buprenorphine is that it has kind of a set limit of, of a, you know, kind of a ceiling dose of 24 milligrams or some say 32 milligrams. But with methadone, you'd mentioned it's really variable and, you know, different people can be stabilized on many different doses. But there's something about that therapeutic dose of 80 to 120. I'm curious, like what what's the evidence for that? Like, what do we mean by that's a therapeutic dose? Anything north of 60 is when you really see people start to dramatically decrease their use of substances. And between 80 and 120 is where, and again, there's a lot of studies on methadone, right? It's been heavily studied, heavily regulated, but heavily studied for the last 50 years, 56 years. Um, but between 80 and 120 is this place where most people end up living and doing well. And how would you know that? Well, you can run the list of the doses at the average methadone clinic and see that. And nicely and thankfully, it really works against fentanyl. I think sometimes people worry fentanyl is so strong that nothing will work against it. But again, it's that fentanyl, short acting, garbage drug all day long. And then as Carolyn described, matching it against a nice, smooth, federally regulated and safe, long acting substance. In 
the vast majority of my patients sit between 80 and 120. And sometimes, you know, they're at 150 or 160 or 180, and sometimes they're stable at 40. And you just acknowledge that everybody is different in that the therapeutic window for methadone for a population is huge, but for an individual, it's pretty small. That's sort of the way I think about it. I am going to say something about the once a day dosing. A lot of people actually don't need it once a day. They need it twice a day. And how do you, would you get to a methadone clinic twice a day? It would be bananas. It's bad enough you have to go there seven days a week or six days a week. But you can dose people twice a day if needed. And sometimes what I'll do is when I have somebody at a very high dose or what feels high in my mind, they're at 200 and they just say at night, it just shuts down like a light switch. It's not there anymore. And then I'm sick. And then I, you know, I keep my stash next to my bedside table. As I look at them and I say, you know what? I feel like you need a dose at night. I think you need a split dose. And then I apply to the federal and state government to do a split dose. It's called getting an exception. It's no big deal. Once you get good at it, it takes you three minutes to do it. They have never once refused any of my exception requests. And there's two specific categories. Every pregnant woman I've ever taken care of, I put her on a split dose by the time she starts second trimester. Because what we think is as the placenta gets fatter and thicker, it just absorbs the methadone away. And women will say, I was fine yesterday and last week. And all of a sudden, I'm destabilized. That person, you offer them a split dose without any questions. And, and they don't come to clinic twice a day. They get a take-home bottle. That's what they get. And they dose in the morning or they already have their take-home bottles and then they dose in the evening. Um, but for people for whom pain is their trigger for use, which is very common, right? When you think about the way the pendulum swung in the U.S. and so many people got cut off their long-term, relatively controlled opiate prescriptions, and then they were left with nothing and pain and suffering, and likely some substance use baseline, they turn to illicit substances. Those people will say, it's pain at night that makes me want to use. And so those people I will split dose because if I can quiet down their physiologic suffering in terms of pain, it is a decrease in their triggering and consequently a decrease in the likelihood of them, them using. So again, not all clinics will do that. I would argue that anybody who cares about people who struggle with opiate use, you guys need to run methadone clinics. We need to get sort of the old school out of the methadone clinics because they are stuck in their way of thinking and they have to change because the time has come. The time is long past change. I think I could just listen to you talk all day about methadone. You know, uh, I feel very strongly as well that it's like so under accessed and resourced. And just for like our guests who may not be as familiar with like what a methadone clinic actually uh, looks like or how it works. Can you just tell us um, if you're going to counsel a patient per se, like what, what would that experience look like establishing care at an opioid treatment program for methadone? So one of the, the sample case that you gave is, is she, she has a lot of ambivalence. She, she knows about methadone. She knows it's hard because in the beginning at every methadone clinic, you have to show up every day. And is that written in the federal rules? It actually is written in the guidance that for the first 30 days, you're supposed to go to the methadone clinic daily. And if I said to the average diabetic, you need to show up at this place to get your insulin every day, all of our ICUs would be filled with people with DKA, period, right? We would bankrupt the American healthcare system because no one would do that. Because no one would do any of this. Showing up every day is impossible. But that's what we mandate for people on methadone in the United States. So that's the first thing. And again, it's, that is written in the federal rules. And written in the federal rules from 1973, they talked about take-home bottles very specifically. It would take you 180 days to get your second take-home bottle, right? You had a day off on a Sunday because the clinic was closed, but oh, three months and you had to be perfect to get it. All of this is spelled out in the, in the federal language. So methadone clinics offer a drug that could save your life and stabilize your life and get things better for you. And yet the clinics themselves, the molecule of methadone is very effective and great. The way methadone clinics exist on the planet and are regulated in the United States is really challenging for patients. You have to show up every single day and methadone clinics open up at 5.30 or 6 in the morning and they close at 10, 11 or noon period. There is one that I'm aware of, 24-hour clinic. I think it's in Phoenix. I think that's quite extraordinary. I take care of a lot of people who work shift work. And they say to me, there's no way I can get here. There's just no way. I, I start work at five in the morning and I work until three. How am I going to make methadone work? And I sit there with them and I think, I don't know. I actually don't know how to make this work for you. And I'm pretty creative. So you show up at a clinic, you're often with 500, 600, 700 people who are walking in those doors that day. It could be pouring rain or blizzard and you're standing in line outside. During COVID, this was very challenging, as you can imagine. 
And then you um, walk in, you do some biometric identification, and you get a dose of, of often, most often liquid methadone. Most clinics don't use pills. You drink it and you walk out the door. So the actual visit, depending on how long the wait is to get dosed, uh, it could take two hours to wait in line. The actual dosing, once you're checked in, might take a minute. So it is a major disruption to people's lives, and yet extremely effective. And people who do well on methadone are often willing to sacrifice a lot of that freedom to get to that. In my practice, as long as an opioid tolerant patient with opioid use disorder is alert, oriented, and not sedated, I'll just start 30 milligrams of methadone right away in the hospital. The really nice thing and the benefit to starting methadone is that you don't actually have to wait for an individual to be in opioid withdrawal before starting the medication. So Miss Palmer, Miss Palm, today uh, we are going to start her on methadone. And I was really hoping, Ruth, if you could actually talk us through some of the granular details. Like you alluded to the fact that we start most of our patients who have opioid tolerance on like 30 milligrams. How do you decide to increase the dose and, and when would you decide to start doing that for her? Keep in mind, she's still in the hospital setting, so we can monitor her. So we, we started her on 30 milligrams and, and we have her in the hospital with supervision. And, you know, again, the, the rules are pretty clear. You could continue to add another five or 10 milligrams during the day if she needed it. You could even go beyond that if she needed it. So you would get a callus on her later in the day and see how she was feeling. Her use walking into the situation was pretty high. She used 20 bags of fentanyl IV most every day. And 30 milligrams, in my experience, is not going to hold her. And we want to hold her. That's the difference, is that we want a medication that's going to keep her in treatment because the outcome of untreated cellulitis, as we all know, could be a lot worse. So we could offer her another 10 milligrams later in the day. We could look at her day one total dose and give that as the complete dose the next morning with another 5, 10, or 15 milligrams later in the day. And that's how you would build her up. Now, in an outpatient setting, you would most often move a little more slowly than that. But here again, you have full eyes on somebody. So you're seeing if they look sedated, if they look too tired. And what we know is being more aggressive with dosing in the fentanyl era seems to work better for people. I am going to make a comment on her. We have to pause for a second and ask ourselves, we're helping her while she's with us. But as she realizes she feels better on methadone, are we living in a place where we actually have a methadone clinic to hand her off to. There are 49 states that have methadone clinics. Wyoming has nothing. So if she's in the state of Wyoming, you will not start her on methadone. There's parts of the island chain of Hawaii. There's no methadone. There's, there's methadone on the big island on no other islands. So you need to ask yourself in my town in the middle of Kansas, is there a methadone clinic that she can reach? And if the answer is no, then starting her on methadone for long-term treatment is not realistic. And so depending on where you are, it is worth going to the SAMHSA website and looking up every one of the, I can't remember the total number, but there's a lot of clinics right now. Maybe there's 3,000 methadone clinics now. They've added a lot of methadone clinics in the last few years. And you should know what your geography is, and you should know if your clinics are taking new people. And our hope is in today's day that everybody should be taking people as basically as walk-ins. But you, under, you need to understand your geography. The other thing I'm going to say about her is you got to make sure she qualifies for methadone. To qualify for methadone, you have to have had an opiate use disorder for greater than a year. And I'm not so sure reading her story if she has that. And if she doesn't have that, she actually doesn't meet federal standards. And that's going to be a problem when she arrives at a methadone clinic. You have to make sure she has a way to get to a methadone clinic. You have to make sure that she's a government-issued ID. And a lot of our people that we take care of don't have those things. And that will turn you away from a methadone clinic. So we ask people to run the methadone checklist. It's not necessarily the doctor's job to do it, but the great social workers and, and case managers should know what it is that people need to walk into a clinic. And it doesn't mean you've done her harm by starting her on methadone. You could end up doing a, a taper with her in the hospital, even though you know it's not the right thing. People do much better on long-term stable treatment than they do on a taper. But if you started her to help her suffering while she was with you, and yet she couldn't get in a methadone clinic because she didn't qualify, we would have to deal with that outcome. I love that methadone checklist. So to summarize, so someone has to have an opioid use disorder for at least a year. There has to be a clinic that's close and geographically reasonable for them to get to. And they must have transportation to get to that clinic before we think about, I shouldn't say before we think about continuing, we want to continue it and an ID. And a government issued ID with a picture on it. That's a, that's a stopping point. Yep. And you have to be over 18. It doesn't matter if you're 17 with severe opiate use disorder. The, the medical director can override it, but they most often won't. 
And can I summarize the the dosing? Because I I think offline before before we were recording, we were talking about this a little bit. So you mentioned day one dose, the first dose might be 30 milligrams, and then we might give another 10 milligrams later. So that would be like a total maybe 40 milligrams the first day. And on day two, we would give the day one dose, and we might go up by five to 15 milligrams later that day, depending on how the patient's feeling based on their cows and their symptoms. And it sounds like we're targeting like, how are you feeling? Are you withdrawing? Are you are you having cravings? And those would be some of the things that would push us to give that extra five to 15. And then each day you just take the dose from the day before, and then you think about going up by five to 15 milligrams, something like that. That is an excellent summary, Matt. I would argue that when you hit 60 or so, you might start slowing down a little bit because remember, as a long-acting drug that has a half-life that could be two days or three days, depending on the body, it starts to stack up in the body. So you might hit 60 and say, you know what, we're going to keep you here for a couple of days and then we'll consider increasing you on day three. So the initial onset might be steep and then the incline slows down a little bit. And then the monitoring, because I think this is we, we this is the other thing. As a noob, I would be like, I would be worried about that overdose. I'd be worried about like QT. Is is, is this person going to have cardiac arrest? So what else are we looking at uh, as we're as we're making this titration, trying to get to that normal range? You told us eighty to one hundred twenty milligrams a day might be a normal a, a normal dose, which I incorrectly assumed was a high dose. <laughs> So QT prolongation is one of the worries about methadone. And we all know there's a bunch of meds that piled together can absolutely cause QT prolongation, which in and of itself is not the problem. It's torsades to points that's the problem. And it's one of these giant fears that we all have. And yet when you look at the rates of them, they're actually really rare. And what we do know is death by opiate overdose is sadly very common. So the number of people statistically who die of torsades in the United States, I think is 15,000 a year. And it's not all from methadone, it's from any number of other meds. But what I see happening in the hospital is EKGs happen every single day. And I'm always like, why are you getting an EKG? Or they have a cardiac issue? And they say, no, they're on methadone. So the way it works in reality, and there's a lot of guidance on this, there was giant expert panel that got put together by the federal government and released their statement in 2010. And then since then, it's been modified. Methadone clinics, most methadone clinics don't do any screening EKG at initiation. And in fact, we all have a threshold number, 120 milligrams, 130 milligrams, where we might get the first screening EKG. Unless somebody walks in and says, I have a history of prolonged QT. And then you're going to perk up your ears and think, huh, that's a problem. So somebody who walks in with significant cardiac history family history of sudden death for unexplained reasons or other sort of uh, cardiac arrhythmias that make you feel anxious, you can start doing EKGs at any point. But it's not one of those things that is an entry to methadone clinic start to start because it's a barrier to accessing treatment. So take a breath and stop your, your EKGs in the hospital. Get one if you want to as a baseline and then let people be normal people without having a daily EKG. You should know that, you know, the stacking of meds is, is real and you should know what other QT prolongers are. Those groups include tricyclic antidepressants, some of the SSRIs like fluoxetine, sertraline, paroxetine. Antibiotics are pretty common. The, the um, fluoroquinolones are common. The macrolides are common. Those are just normal meds. And the thing is that people can stack up on those pretty fast without you thinking about it. It's nothing to have somebody on an SSRI and then a tricyclic to help with pain or sleep at night. And then they end up on fluconazole for a fungal nail, a nail infection and they're on methadone. And then you have four QT prolongers on top. That is somebody you needed to have paid attention to. So I always run people's med lists and talk about that. Carolyn, you were mentioning like uh, the full agonist, um, giving giving other medications if the person's also having pain. You think that's something we should talk about? Yeah, I think it's really important to know patients in the hospital, they have pain, right? They're there for an acute reason. That is what landed them in the hospital in the first place. And we shouldn't shy away from treating our patients appropriately uh, with full agonist opioids. So it's not uncommon in my practice to start methadone as well as use another medication like oxycodone or hydromorphone to treat their pain because they're really separate processes, right? I'm using the methadone to treat their opioid use disorder and I need to provide something else to actually help them with their acute pain. You have to monitor them closely, right? You got to be careful. You got to sort of give a dose, but also like uh, a lot of our patients have tolerance. So 
you're going to expect to have to titrate and use higher doses. You know, oxycodone of five milligrams is probably not going to help somebody who's using fentanyl 20 bags a day, right? Um, I'm probably going to start at a higher dose, at least oxycodone 10 or 15, just to help um, provide some analgesic relief. And I think another point I want to bring up, I want to throw a wrench in this case or in a parallel universe. Okay, so let's say our patient, uh, Ms. Palm, Palmer, I've changed her name a couple of times. I apologize, Ms. Palm slash Palmer. But let's say they're already on methadone clinic and let's say they're getting 120 milligrams. I think it's important to know that methadone is not on prescription monitoring programs, right? So say you're a hospitalist who is like, oh, wow, this this sounds like a large dose of methadone. How could a hospitalist sort of go about like confirming the dose of methadone that they're on and deciding like what dose they should restart? So everybody needs to call the methadone clinic and confirm dose. That's just standard of care. It's the same way you might call a pharmacy and get an accurate med list because um, only things that are on the PMP are controlled substances. So you don't know what other medicines people are taking without calling and confirming doses. So the right thing to do is to have a list of all the methadone clinics in your region and have easy access. You always have to call them in the morning because that's when methadone clinics are open. It's actually really frustrating that there's not an easy place to check methadone doses. It makes all of us crazy. And the reason it's not on the PMP is not due to 42 CFR and the restrictions on confidentiality because buprenorphine is there. And you would think if it was all about confidentiality protection, then bup wouldn't be there. But instead, it's because the PMP is uploaded by pharmacists, right? It happens at the pharmacy level. And methadone isn't happening at a pharmacy. It's happening and being dispensed from a specific clinic. So you got to call the methadone clinic and say, hi, I'm calling about Ms. Palm and I just wanted to check on her methadone dose. Can you tell me a little bit about her history as well? Because that's helpful. And they can say to you, she's been with us for three years. She has 14 take-home bottles. She's been super stable. I'm so sorry she's in the hospital. That gives you a lot of information. They could also say to you, wow, she only comes three times a week. Transportation seems to be really bad. She's, she's pretty unstable. And that's somebody who you would think about a little differently. Um, you would pause and ask yourself, should I start her at 120? She missed the last four days. Maybe I should start her at 100 or 80 because her dose really isn't seven days a week at 120. So knowing somebody's methadone dosing history when you call is really helpful. Do you have any rules of thumb to help guide you if somebody has missed like one versus two versus three days of methadone? If they've missed one, two, or three, or even four, I don't do anything. Once they've missed five days, the way the system is designed is they presume, the system designs that you've been opiate naive for five days. But we all know that's not true. People are still using opiates. They're just not using methadone. So the system says, I will reduce your dose because I'm worried you're now have reset your receptors in your brain and you're more naive than you used to be. So at that point, the average clinic will cut by 20 or 30 or 40%. So on day five in my clinics, we cut by 20%. And then we try to return them back to their stable dose as fast as possible. Can I talk a little bit about liquid versus pill methadone? Just to remind everybody that if you are treating somebody with an opiate use disorder, you are not allowed to prescribe methadone, period. And as much as you may want to help somebody in the state of Wyoming where there's no methadone clinic, you will have your license likely sanctioned if you do that. You absolutely can't. You can use methadone for pain. And when you use methadone for pain, somebody takes a prescription you've written and they go to a pharmacy and pills are dispensed in a bottle. But once they have the diagnosis of opiate use disorder, if you're a primary care doctor, you're kind of out of the picture. And is that the way it should be? Maybe not, but it is the way it is today. So I want no one listening to this program to help a person, but yet put their own license in jeopardy. Opiate use disorder can only be treated at a, a licensed methadone clinic or could be started in a hospital or a jail, and then they go to a methadone clinic. So in a, when it's prescribed and dispensed at a pharmacy, it's most often in pill form. When it's used at a methadone clinic, it could be used in pill form. It could be used in a troch form, but most often it's used in a liquid dispensing machine that gets dispensed through electronic medical record. But it works equally as well. The bioavailability is the same, whether it's a pill or a liquid. It's a really important point, and thank you for protecting the licenses of our listeners. <laughs> Just getting back to this point about the, when you're trying to confirm a methadone dose for somebody who's coming to the hospital, I mean, I'm thinking of when I was an intern and a resident, like I'd be working overnight, someone gets admitted, methadone clinic isn't open, so I don't, you know, I don't have a way of confirming that dose. And, you know, oftentimes before our hospital had a consult service that would you know, help guide us with methadone, they would just sit there suffering 
without their dose. And from what you said before, it sounds like we could at least in the interim offer 40 milligrams, you know, 20, 30, 40 milligrams, make sure that they have some part of that dose. But how do you usually handle that situation? I would do it just the way you said. If I was really unable to confirm, I would give them something to hold them. If they were scoring, if they walk in and they're under the influence and they're sedated, they don't need to be treated right then. They may have used sitting in the waiting room. But if they are starting to score on a cow's and they're getting sick and they said, I missed my dose this morning, my normal dose is 100. The last time I was clinic was yesterday. I need you to call the clinic. I would put give them 30 or, or 40 and get them through a little bit. And I would provide any other comfort meds that they would need to help them feel less sick until I could get a hold of the clinic. I love this. This has been so helpful. I've, I've learned so much tonight. Was there something else that we needed to cover that we didn't that you guys think was critical? So uh, you've taught us so much today, Ruth. Can you give us just a couple of your main take-home points for our audience? Methadone is a very effective substance in the fentanyl era, and we need to be using it more, particularly at the hospital level. In the The cracks in the fortress of methadone are real now, and I believe in the next five years how people access methadone will be completely different in this country, and we need to all work towards that. And for all of us who care about people who struggle, you need to understand the way methadone works. You need to get more confident and competent in doing it. Part of listening to this podcast might help you. Um, and start using it so that people can actually stay for treatment while they're in the emergency room or in the hospital. And is there anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, I'm going to plug rage, actually, because when you look at the way methadone is dispensed, you know, people are treated like criminals, right? Methadone clinics are carceral institutions. They're designed as such, and it's unacceptable. And methadone really can be managed in primary care. The way it works in the UK is you get started on methadone in a methadone clinic. And then once you're stable, you get handed back to your GP. And then your GP writes your scripts and you get filled at the pharmacy. And that's what we should be doing. At a minimum, that's what we should be doing. There's a whole bunch of things we can change, but that's the first thing that should happen. And this is not passing laws. This is literally signing a piece of paper and changing the regs. That's what it takes. But it's going to take this young generation to be outraged and it's going to shake up the system. You heard that, listeners. Rage. That's the plug. You know, we we need everyone to be an advocate, really. You know, we need to be stronger advocates for our patients. And the only way to change that is for all of us to kind of to work together to do that, to really make addiction treatment that's evidence evidence based accessible for all. I love that. That's my I think that's my favorite plug of all time is rage. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but I love it. So this has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Addiction Medicine. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at curbsidersaddictionmed at gmail.com. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project, as well as to ACAM, or the American College of Academic Addiction Medicine. To learn more about the organization, check them out at acam.org. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. And until next time, I've been Dr. Carolyn Chan. And I've been Dr. Kenny Morford. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you some addiction medicine pearls. And I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Thank you and good night. (laughs) 